I'll add my welcome. It is good to be here this morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is truly an honor and a pleasure to be able to stand before you and deliver a message from God's Word. And appreciate you all being here this morning. You know, Scripture warns us of times when people will fall away from the faith. If you're there in First Timothy, or Second Timothy, beg your pardon, in Second Timothy chapter three, read these verses with me, beginning in verse one, Second Timothy chapter three. But realize this: that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. So you might read that list and say, we're living in those times now, aren't we? (laughs) Absolutely. These are characteristics of men of men who do not put God first in their lives, and all these other things that they practice. This is a sobering teaching, isn't it? It's sobering to think about there are people in this world who are like this. But what's really frightening is what's said next. Look at verse 6 and 7. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's one thing for people to fall away from the faith. It's quite another for them to take people with them. The Bible is not difficult to understand. We have passages like 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, it tells us that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as with all the churches of the saints. God's not a God of confusion. He hasn't written a book that is hard for us to understand. He's written a book for us that is, that is for us easy to understand. It provides clear and simple teaching. It is people who cloud the waters people who muddy up the waters and make simple teachings into complex belief systems and rituals. It's people that do that, not God. Read verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Proceed from bad to worse. You see a progression there? From bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. From simple teachings, they progress into lawlessness. This morning, I'd like for us to take a look at that progression. And I'd like for us to consider it in this way. To consider it as the evolution of apostasy. The evolution of apostasy. Let's start by defining some terms. Evolution. 
simply means a process of change in a certain direction. A lot of times we talk about evolution and think about, you know, Darwinism, people evolving from a lower life form into a higher life form. Well, that's part of it, but evolution simply just means a process of a change in a certain direction. Apostasy means an act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. Apostasy simply just means falling away from the faith. If we put that together and talk about evolution of apostasy, this is the process, the process of moving away from the faith. I want to give some examples where we see this happening. Let's start with this example, singing. What does the New Testament tell us about singing? Well, we have passages like Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Similar passage in Ephesians 5, 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. It's clear that singing is authorized. While the New Testament is silent on the matter of instruments being used in worship to God. In fact, the earliest occurrence of instrumental music happened around the 7th century A.D. That's some 600 years after the day of Pentecost. Introduced by Pope Vitalian I, when the organ started making its way into the Catholic Church service. 600 years. That means there's been, there were 600 plus years of singing only, following what the New Testament says. Singing and making melody in your heart. Let's see what some have said about instrumental music. Here's a quote. Musical instruments and celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. This person gets it. This person understands that the New Testament simply says to sing. If we're going to hold to something more than that, well, then we might start burning incense, start making sacrifices. Guess who said that? That was John Calvin. John Calvin was probably the most famous Protestant reformer. His beliefs would become later known as Calvinism. are in a lot of denominational teachings throughout the world. But even he, even he understood that the scripture, scripture said simply to sing. Let's look at another one. I would as soon pray to God with machinery as to sing to God with machinery. This person is saying, if you're going to sing with machinery, you need to, might as well pray with machinery too. It would be just as authorized if you were to try to find that authorization in Scripture, in the New Testament. A Baptist said that. Charles Spurgeon. Here's another one. I have no opposition to the organ in our chapel, provided it is neither seen nor heard. You've probably heard that one somewhere along the way, haven't you? Okay, it's in the chapel as long as I, it's not seen or heard. John Wesley said that. He was a Methodist.
Most Protestant denominations in the Catholic Church use instruments in worship today. For 600-something years, singing was okay. And then someone brought in an organ. And then that has led to all sorts of other kind of instruments that have come into the worship. Let me ask you this question. Have these verses changed? Singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Singing and making melody, melody with your heart to the Lord. If you open your Bibles and look at those two passages, depending on what translation you have, it's going to be something very similar to that. And why? Because God's word hasn't changed. These verses haven't changed. No, they have not changed. People have moved away from this teaching. Let's look at another example. Women as church leaders. What does scripture say about women as church leaders? 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1 says, It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Overseer is a synonym with elder or shepherd or bishop. That's the office of elders in the church. Verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3 says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. In the chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, it says this in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This is what scripture says, this and other places is what scripture says about women. Don't get me wrong. There are lots of verses that talk about women and the importance of them. Romans 16.1 comes to mind. Women are important in the church, but God has clearly set up the leadership in this way. The Episcopal Church in the USA, this is their statement about women in leadership roles. Supportive of women in all leadership, including ordination, women's ministry, and working for gender justice. The American Baptist Churches USA supports all forms of leadership for women and the empowerment of them and the elimination of sexism in the church. The Presbyterian Church USA. Women were prohibited from serving as elders or deacons until the 1930s or the 1960s in the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., ordaining women to the gospel ministry took an additional 20 to 30 years. Today, however, the proportion of women and men serving in ordained offices is nearly 50% each, a development that is mirrored in the enrollment figures of the 10 Presbyterian theological institutions. Notice anything in there? There's a progression. Up to the 30s and the 60s, women weren't in leadership roles. It says right here in this statement, it took another 20 to 30 years for them to get into those roles. The United Church of Christ, and understand when I put this up here, this has nothing to do with the congregation that you're sitting in. This is a group that has far away left teachings of simple biblical scripture, but they wear that name. But this is what they say. 
We cherish and work to be advocates on behalf of all women, lay and clergy, the young and the not as young. Has this verse changed? I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. Look in your Bible. Does that read something that similar to that? I'd venture guess that it does. And this verse has not changed. It is people that have moved away from this teaching. Let's look at another example. Lord's Supper. We just engaged in the Lord's Supper. We just partook of the, the bread and the fruit of the vine, which to the Christian is the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather on the first day of the week to remember that sacrifice and memorialize it in the taking of the bread and the fruit of the vine. Paul's reminding the Corinthians about this that the Lord instituted himself. I received from the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Simple teaching, isn't it? Down here we say, it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, there inherent in that is a repeating, some kind of frequency. We go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and we see this on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, but he prolonged his message until midnight. So we have a frequency that Paul mentions there in 1 Corinthians 11. And we have the apostolic example of them on the first day of the week gathering together to break bread. Put those things together, what does it tell us? We come here on the first day of the week to take the Lord's Supper. Let's look at a few examples here. There's John Wesley again with the Methodists. He said that it was the duty of the Christians to receive the sacrament as often as possible. He's referring to the Lord's Supper there. You're going to see the word sacrament and Eucharist. There's Eucharist. Those are terms that men have put in relating to the Lord's Supper. Methodists in the United States are encouraged to celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday, though it is typically celebrated on the first Sunday of each month, while a few go as long as celebrating it quarterly. Baptist, the frequency of communion is not specified in the Baptist polity, and there is no unanimity as to its frequency based on relevant scriptures. These things are referring to Baptist doctrine that they print and update and change over time. But they said there's no uh, unanimity as to the frequency based on the scriptures. LifeWay Research did a survey back in 2012 of Southern Baptist churches. Here's some of the results of that. 57% took the Lord's Supper quarterly. 15% took it five to ten times a year. 8% took it less than four times per year. 1% took it each week. 
Have these verses changed? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week. These verses have not changed. It's people that have moved away from this teaching. Something else about the Lord's Supper. Same passage from 1 Corinthians 11. Look down here where it says, He took the cup also after supper. And down in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a movement out, perhaps you've seen or heard about this, of including the Lord's Supper in a common meal. There is a man named Eflagard Smith, who uh, formerly, I believe, was a scholar at Lipskin University. I would guess that you could call him a, a, a brother of the institutional churches of Christ, institutional brethren, however you might want to des describe him. But he wrote a book called Radical Restoration. And in that book, he talks, among other things, about the Lord's Supper, and he, talk, and he makes the argument for the Lord's Supper being included in a common meal when the church comes together. On page 128 there, it says, Perhaps the most universally overlooked feature of the Lord's Supper, as practiced in the primitive church, is that, from all appearances, it was observed in conjunction with a fellowship meal. He goes on to say, The Lord's Supper gave meaning to their table fellowship, and their table fellowship gave meaning to the Lord's Supper. Each was a picture of the other. I want to ask this question. Where in the New Testament do we read of table fellowship? Now, granted, I will be the first to tell you and, and understand that we read of Christians eating together in the New Testament. Right there in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking a bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I have no question that Christians were taking their meals together. But Paul makes it clear that the Lord's Supper was not wrapped up in eating and drinking. Look at this earlier in 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's chastising them for the things that they were doing in taking of the Lord's Supper. He says, when you're coming together, it's not to take the Lord's Supper. Why? He says, for in your eating, one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Paul was not praising them because they were taking a common meal and having the Lord's Supper in conjunction with it. He's chastising them for that. He says you got homes. You have homes in which to eat. When you come together, it's not take the Lord's Supper. You're coming together, you're treating it as a common meal. Here's the argument against what Mr. Smith says. Further, verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 11. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. 
so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Is there a stronger argument against a common meal than that? Brethren, if you're hungry, you eat before you come together with the Christians to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a common meal. In Romans 14 and verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I ask the question again, has this verse changed? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Eat the bread, this bread, and drink the cup. Where are the instructions for the rest of the meal? The lamb roasted with fire, the bitter herbs, the raisin cakes. We don't have any instructions for those. What does Paul say? Eat the bread and drink the cup. What do you do by doing that? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the instructions of the Lord's Supper. Of course, this verse hasn't changed. People have moved away from this teaching. They've moved away, deceiving and being deceived. What does it mean to us? What does all this mean to us? It means for us that we need to hold fast. Christians got to hold fast. A Christian is to hold firm to the faith. That term, hold fast, what does that mean? It means to keep secure, to keep firm possession of. Hold fast. Hold firm to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16, beginning. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not despise what God is telling you. Examine it and hold fast to the good word that you are being taught. 2 Timothy 3. We read this a minute ago. Realize this, the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers. These uh, lovers of self, lovers of money, this list of men and their ungrateful, their, their malicious gossips, all these things that describe these men in later times. Avoid such men as these. You know them. You can recognize them. Paul's telling the young Timothy here, the young evangelist, avoid those kind of people. Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in, his, in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. God has not left us unprepared. He's not left us without the tools in order to fend this off. And that tool is the word of God. It gives us what we need to be able to stand firm and to stand against the schemes of the devil.
A Christian then is not to drift away from the faith. We looked at those examples of those over time who have drifted away from the faith. Some took a lot of time. But we see a, remember our definition of evolution is the process of moving away from something. Sadly, we see that too often. What does scripture say? Luke 9, verse 62. says, But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is worthy of the kingdom of God. In the context there, he's talking about discipleship. He's talking about what it takes to be a follower of his. And those are asking, can I go back and bury my, bury my dead? Can I go back and tell my household goodbye? And in that context, Jesus says that. You put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Don't fall away. Don't get off the path on which you are going. Stay on that path of righteousness. Not drifting away from the faith. In Hebrews 10, verse 39, says, But we are, not, we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So much of chapter 10 is talk about endurance, perseverance. As a Christian, we've got to make sure that we're not shrinking back to destruction. Make sure we're not moving in the direction away from the faith. We're not drifting away from the faith. Back in 2 Timothy, chapter 3. We read this in our scripture reading. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. What does that tell us? Does it tell us to to find something in scripture where we can see that uh, we can add instruments to our singing? Or we can take the Lord's Supper and add other things to it and call that a common meal and, and say that it's okay to do that. Or we can put women in leadership roles that they were not designed to be into. No. It says continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. Continue in those things. Knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Russ there, when he read, one of those times, I like a little bit different translation sometime. All scripture is inspired by God. Russ said, all scripture is God-breathed from the mouth of God. Why would we want to turn away from that? Why would we think that we have anything better than than what comes out of the mouth of God? Hold fast. The question comes down to then, are you holding fast? Or are you drifting away? It's one or the other. We live in a place where holding fast means something, doesn't it? Tying up to the dock. If you don't make sure those, those lines are fast, what's the boat going to do? It's just going to drift away. These are tidal waters out here. Water moves. The wind blows. And that boat will go away if it's not held fast. So I encourage you to hold fast. To not be tossed about by these 
trickeries, these deceits, these teachings of men, because that's exactly what they are. This is the teaching of God. Put your trust and your faith in this book, and you won't be disappointed. If you have needs of the congregation, if you're not a child of God, I encourage you to become one. And once you're a child of God, I encourage you to hold fast to the teachings that come from his inspired word. If you have needs of this congregation, whatever they might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.